with me or listen on now as I read Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that She is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for this word. We thank you that as we march on through Romans, admittedly through a slow pace, Uh, that we are finding many rich treasures, many jewels, many treasures that we might cherish now and which we are able to store up for ourselves in heaven. The thought of what it means to be the bride of Christ. God, may you now through the preaching expound this now more fully to us so that we might prize our position. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so often uh, the chapter headings I have to lament are not a help to us, though in this case, uh, I would say really uh, they are. Uh, We come now to a new section in the argument, and and Romans really is uh, divided just right. The chapter headings really uh, do represent, it seems, every time a new theme which Paul begins to expound. It would be helpful here uh, to realize and to remember that what Paul is doing primarily in Romans chapter uh, 5 through 8, is to describe the position of the Christian man. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, You you see, in chapters 1 through 4, he's expounding the doctrine itself, but in chapters 5 through 8, he's describing what it means in a personal sense for the man who has been justified. And then in chapter 6, obviously, he says uh, things like, uh, you, you've, you've died with Christ and you've, ri- you've been raised with him to new life. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've died to it. You see, he's describing the Christian position. And all along, the way to make this a practical concern is obvious, isn't it? At least it should be, I would think. But let me spell it out in case it isn't. Paul is describing the Christian man and all along the way we ought to be evaluating our position in light of it. That's why so often I've been asking, have I described you? Do you know anything about what Paul is saying in these verses? And I'm going to keep saying that. Is he describing me? And if he isn't, then why not? Why do I not match the description here? Is it because I am not a Christian? Well, that's possible. It's possible that there are those who are here. In fact, it's certain that there are those who are here who need to be shaken to the foundations and to question whether, indeed, you are a Christian. Some of you know full well that you are not, that you do not match the description. Oh, but how easily you might, if only you believed in Jesus and were transformed by his power. 
There is another possibility, however, and I think this is the primary uh, primary thing that Paul has in mind, and that is, as he's speaking to Christian people, and as I am speaking to Christian people, it is that you have misunderstood what it is to be a Christian. If you do not match the description, it isn't so much that you aren't a Christian, but it's that you've misunderstood what it is to be a Christian, and in particular... As we've begun uh, to explore in chapter 6, but really even before then in chapter 5, the thing that we've misunderstood is grace. What does grace mean for the Christian man? Uh, What does it mean to be under grace? What does it mean to be transformed by grace? You recognize by the questions which Paul is asking in chapter 6, verse 1, and again in chapter 6, verse 15, that it is the very concept of grace that has been misunderstood. Or in another sense, as he goes on, in chapter 7, to describe now the, 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 the relation of the believer to the law, here's another thing we've misunderstood. Or at least it's possible that we have. And as a result of misunderstanding our relation to the law, we've gone astray in the Christian life so that our life doesn't match the description. And so as I press on uh, with Romans, I'm, uh, I, particularly in chapter 7, I'm describing the Christian man. And the question Uh, which I'm asking, and that I will be asking is, am I describing you? And if not, why not? The believer in his relation to the law, that's the theme now. You remember chapter 6, the theme was the believer in his relation to sin. He's died to sin. What's so amazing, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but what's so amazing is that Paul will actually say, you've died to the law. Wait a second, Paul, did you mean to say that? Yes. You've not only died to sin, but you've died to the law. So obviously we've arrived at a new stage in the argument, only he's building upon what he's already said. But the first thing, as I'm introducing this chapter, that I would like to note is, is this. Chapter 6 was a chapter full of difficulties. Uh, and, and if I may say so, chapter 7 even more so. And so my first point is the difficulties that confront us in this chapter. I I was especially struck, and I'm often struck, as you know, by what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his exposition of these uh, passages in Romans. Uh, But he didn't actually preach what I'm about to read to you. This was in the preface to the volume itself. He says, this volume deals with what is undoubtedly one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. Whatever view one may take of it inevitably leads to criticism and disagreement. I think that captures it perfectly. You might take one position, but inevitably, as a result of that, you will find yourself at odds with other Christians. I find myself, for instance, at odds with fellow ministers in the OPC. I found myself at odds uh, with other Christians in my seminary days. And perhaps uh, in my exposition of this, I will find myself at odds with you and you will find yourself at odds with me. There is a great deal of disagreement, if you're familiar with what I'm talking about, with the latter portion of the chapter. The controversy begins in verse 13 when he begins to describe this terrible conflict uh, between himself and the law. And the question which arises is, uh, using the categories I hope that we are familiar with now, is, is he describing the old man who was under the law? That's the position Lloyd-Jones takes. So uh, at last I must confess my disagreement with my beloved uh, Lloyd-Jones. Or is he describing the new man in Christ and his ongoing battle with sin? That's the position I take. It's the position I was taught in seminary by Dr. Gaffin. And I believe it's the position many of you do take. 
But the way to resolve, uh, in general, the controversy, whichever side you take, is to recognize that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, uh, more broadly, in chapter 7, one problem in particular. And that is the impotence of the law. And I use that word, uh, I use that word specifically, the impotence of the law. Uh, if you will, I know this is graphic language, but this is precisely the, the idea that Paul is using. The law as our husband is incapable of impregnating us as the wife with uh, a fruitful seed to God. Only Christ can do that. The impotence of the law, its inability. It is incapable of delivering us from sin. It is incapable of enabling us uh, to become fruitful wives unto God. In fact, its tendency is to make, a, to make uh, things worse in our relationship to sin. As we go on with our analysis of this chapter, that will become clear. Let me offer you, as a second point, a general analysis of the chapter. Following John Murray, I agree that chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 must be seen as the true exposition of chapter 6, verse 14. In chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, up to that point, he's been saying you're dead to sin. But then he introduces this new idea. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. You see, he didn't say you're not under sin. He said you're not under the law. That's something new. But then, before he can expound that thought, he has to deal with an objection, which he raises in verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And certainly not, he says, and then tells us why. Certainly not is the appropriate answer. But having cleared away that objection, as he's apt to do, he then is free to expound the thought. Why was it that we needed to be uh, to use the, the language of the text divorced from the law? You see, to be under the law is like being married to the law. It's our husband who rules us. We needed to be divorced from it. Why? That's what he explains here. Why did we need to be brought out from under the law? And so to divide the chapter uh, under three headings, my analysis of the chapter is this. Chapter uh, 7, verses 1 through 6, which I'll divide under two sermons, is the main teaching of the chapter. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer married to the law. You're now married to Christ. And Christ, uh, Christ is able to make you fruitful unto God. That's the main teaching of the chapter. But then, once again, what Paul does is he begins to anticipate and to answer objections. For the rest of the chapter, he does that. In fact, I, as I hope to say next time, uh, chapters uh, 7, 4 through 6 is, is really the heart of what he's teaching. And he doesn't really continue with that line of thought until chapter 8, verse 1. And so once again, he, he brings up the, re- the objections. Does that mean, if I'm saying you have to be divorced from the law, does that mean that the law is bad? No, it isn't. The law is good, he says. The law is not the problem. That's the second section, verse, verses 7 through 13. But then in, uh, as a third heading, he describes this terrible conflict. Uh, excuse me, verses 7 through 12 was the second heading. Verses 13 through 25 uh, is the third heading. The terrible conflict only in doing so, he is uh, offering a further vindication of the law and a further condemnation of man as the problem. The problem isn't the law, the problem is me. And in particular, it is the sin which dwells in me. The reason we fail to keep the law ultimately is because of sin. That's what he'll say under that third Heading, And so that would lead me uh, as a third point by way of general introduction uh, to express Paul's general attitude about the law. 
Now, Paul makes many disparaging comments about the law throughout Romans. He'll say things like, the law cannot justify. Uh, your position under the law is hopeless. It only, it only aggravates the problem. It only, it only uh, condemns you. It kills you. It causes you to sin more. There's a great scandal to being under the law. We need to understand why he makes all of these disparaging comments. Uh, The antinomian falsely thinks that Paul is saying, I don't like the law. I don't want anything to do with the law. The essence of the Christian position is to be done with the law altogether. That is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that the law is incapable of justifying you. A man who seeks to be right, uh, right in the sight of God can never find the righteousness which God requires through the law. That is, through his own obedience. He has to see how hopeless his position is. Not because the law is something bad, but because he's a sinner. But equally, as Paul goes on to expound in chapters 6 and 7, let the same man see, even the man who was saved and justified, that even then the law is incapable of sanctifying him. The law is unable uh, to bring about the fruit which it requires or which God requires of us. Uh, As though to say, and Paul will later say this in Galatians, you don't want to come under the resources of grace and of the spirit only to, to hurry back under the law, under the old husband. You've got to stay under grace. You've got to stay under the spirit. You don't begin by the spirit and then finish by the works of the law. That's the language of Galatians. No, you begin by the spirit and you continue by the spirit. You're justified by grace. You're sanctified by grace. If a man wants to be holy, he's got to get out from under the law. That's the point. Otherwise, he'll never bear fruit for God. In other words, if he wants to keep the dictates of the law, he's got to get out from under the law. But let us see at the same time, and it ought to be evident in what I was saying, that Paul is by by no means setting aside the law. He's by no means saying, I don't want you to have any interest in the law. What he's rather doing is to say, this is how... You will ever have any hope of keeping it for yourself. If the law says do this and live and you will be regarded as righteous in the sight of God. Find that righteousness in Jesus Christ. Or if the law says honor your father and mother or wives submit to your husbands or husbands love your wives as particular commandments as it comes to you. If you ever want to keep these laws which Paul wanted us to do. That's why so often the reading of the law comes from the New Testament. You'll only ever be able to do so. Through the resources of grace, which come to us through the Holy Spirit. Paul's great desire, we will see in chapters 7 and 8, is not to denigrate the law, but rather to denigrate the legalist. His great desire, in fact, was to vindicate the law and to honor its true place and its true purpose, both in leading men to Christ, uh, but also in outlining our sin and outlining the will of God. And so any man who thinks that the effect of Paul's teaching was to get rid of the law was to tell you, you know, you don't have to keep it. In fact, if you begin to try to keep the law, then what you're really doing is you're denying Christ. That's the argument of the antinomian. Any man who says that obviously does not understand Paul in the slightest. What his concern was to do is to vindicate the law and to tell us this is how you you are meant to keep it. This is how the commands and the dictates of the law will actually come to fulfillment in your life so that you will find 
Uh, again, to use the language of the reading of the law from earlier, as wives, you really can, from the heart, submit to your husbands. And, and husbands, you really can love your wives. As you draw resources, not from the law, you see, but from the Holy Spirit himself. Now, I'm anticipating the later argument. It comes out in verse 6 of chapter 7, and then ultimately he expounds it in chapter 8. The way to keep the laws through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as soon as we get to chapter 7, verse 6, he becomes the focus. But we'll leave that for future sermons. But that brings us as the next point, having uh, brought to you a general analysis and a general introduction, the actual teaching of these verses as we begin to consider the Pauline position, which is the Christian position, his attitude and his true relationship to the law. And uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, divides itself neatly and naturally into into three sections. Uh, First, as Paul does in the prior section, chapter uh, 6, verse 15 to the end, he states a general principle. That's what he does here. The general principle in chapter 6 was, you're the slave of the one you obey. Now, that's a general principle. That's true in every case. But then he applies it in a particular way to the Christian. He illustrates it, then he applies it. He does the same thing here. There's a general principle, an illustration, then an application. The general principle is this. It's something that everybody knows. It's a matter of common knowledge. Do you not know that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? And let me just add a word. I think it it, it clarifies his meaning only, only as long as he lives. The law is only enforced so long as a man lives. I don't think there's anything controversial about this. I don't think Paul felt there was anything controversial about this. It is a matter, again, as I say, of common knowledge. But the language that he uses, uh, and if you looked at it carefully, you would have noticed this, suggests something about the principle itself. Now, I stated the principle in this way, but I'm about to strengthen it. The principle is the law is only enforced so long as a man lives, but... Paul says something even stronger. He says that the law has dominion only so long as a man lives. He's actually talking about a form of bondage, a form of slavery. Is that surprising? Given what he just said in the prior section. We're all slaves of something. We're we're bound to something, either to God or to sin. And so here he talks about a form of bondage. In other words, something from which we cannot break free. Whatever we may wish, whatever we may desire, whatever we may do, we are stuck in this position. The law is ruling us. It has dominion over us. But he does place a limit on this bondage. And the limit is death. Death is the end of the bondage. Having stated the principle, he goes on to illustrate the principle in verses 2 and 3. For the woman uh, who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband uh, and 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 so on. The prince or uh, the illustration is marriage. And, And it is the illustration of a woman who is in bondage to her husband. That is, she is bound by marriage to her husband. That's the law of marriage. And she is freed, Paul says, from the law of marriage when her husband dies. And to strengthen the point, he says in verse 3, that if she were to remarry while her husband was still alive, she is an adulteress. Which agrees with what Jesus 
our Lord says in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, that if any man divorces his wife and marries another, except in the case of pornea, sexual immorality, he commits adultery against his wife. That is the law of marriage to which the wife is bound and to which the husband is bound so long as they live. Don't we say that so long as we both shall live? No matter what. Of course, if you die, then I'm free. But not until then. The purpose of what Paul and Jesus say is to underline the extent to which is one, uh, the extent to which one is bound to the other in marriage. The bond is such that it cannot be broken except by death or adultery, Jesus says, porneia. Anything short of this leads to a situation in which the bond of marriage remains, even in the case of divorce, which is why entering into a new marriage is called adultery. You are committing adultery against the first spouse. Why? Because the divorce papers did not accomplish what you thought they did. The law of marriage was stronger than that. Of course, Paul says, and the law of marriage recognizes this. And we say this at the wedding, uh, at the time of our weddings. If her husband dies, there's no such constraint. She's perfectly free to remarry. There is no offense. There is no sin. She's transgressed no law. And the same, Jesus says, is true in the case of adultery. But in any other case, the new relationship that is formed is adulterous. It is sinful. It transgresses the bond of marriage. It ignores the force of the bond and the force of the law. It is to break the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so there's two points being illustrated by the marriage relationship. One is the force of the bond. It's something which is permanent, something from which uh, the person in this bond is not able to break free. One cannot simply decide the bond no longer applies. Uh, God does not leave us free in that regard. And it used to be the case that the state didn't either. You couldn't just say, well, I want to divorce my spouse. Oh, no, the state said. And no, oh, no, God is still saying you're not free to do that. Even our confession says persons in such cases are not left to their own wills. This isn't a matter of what you're deciding. It's a matter of the law itself to which you are bound and under which you live. The law is in force so long as a man lives, the law of marriage. But it does also mean, as a second point, that though there can be no freedom from this law, except in the case of death or adultery, that there is true freedom in such cases. It is understanding the force of the bondage that reveals the freedom that occurs in the event of death. The law of marriage, which binds this woman to her husband, no longer does so if the husband dies. The person for whom this is true experiences a true freedom to remarry. Now stick with me because this is about to be applied to the case of the believer in his relation to the law and his relation to Christ. But before I get to that, as an aside, though this passage is not about marriage, at least not primarily, it is clear that Paul is operating with an assumption that such things could be taken for granted. Don't you know that this is what marriage is? 
Don't you know that the woman who just decides, I don't want to be married to this man anymore, I'm going to marry another man. That woman is an adulteress. Don't you know that? A matter of common knowledge. Don't you know that if her husband died, of course she's free to remarry. There's no scandal in that. But there is scandal in divorce and remarriage. At the same time, let me say, and this is the aside, that we can no more take such things for granted. It isn't obvious anymore. The law of marriage is not upheld in society, and I am sorry to say it is not upheld in the church anymore either. Can we appreciate, beloved, the tragedy of this, that men do not know this, men and women do not know this, and men and women do not live in light of this as Christian people especially? Well, let me say two things about this. One is that such a view is quite clearly disastrous to marriage itself. It's disastrous to the witness that is possible in light of Christian marriage. But there is a further tragedy that we ought to appreciate. And that is the fact that if we do not realize the force of the bond of marriage, we will not understand what follows in the argument of the Apostle Paul. We will not understand why it was so difficult to break free from our bondage to the law. You see, the man isn't able, or the woman in this case, is not able to just say, you know, I don't want to be married to the law anymore. Paul says, impossible. Someone has to die. But even more tragic than that is that such a low view of marriage and such a low view of divorce fails and it fails to take into account the new marriage that is formed between Jesus and the church and the reality of the permanence, the unbreakableness of the bond. The question is, will Jesus ever divorce us? Can he ever divorce us? Can we ever break free from this? Can even our sin cause us to be divorced by Jesus? And the answer is no, it can't. And if you know the law of marriage, well, then you will know this. You will understand why it is so wonderful and so glorious to be free from the old husband and to be married to the new. And so the principle is applied in verse 4. The principle is this, and it will continue to be applied in verses 5 and 6, which we'll look at next time. The principle is, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The believer has died to the law. That's the argument. It wasn't that the believer said, I don't want to be married to the law anymore. Well, he might have said that, but it doesn't matter. A death has to occur, and a death has occurred. Just as the believer died to sin, chapter 6, in the same way he has died to the law. And in the same way that he died to sin, namely by the death of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, too, was not only under sin, but he was under the law. He was born under the law, Paul says, Galatians chapter 4. He lived under the law and he died under it. In fact, he died because he was under it. But by his death, he not only died to sin and to death once for all, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, but he died to his bondage to the law once for all as well. He came out from under it in his resurrection and began to enjoy something new, a new relationship to God. He entered fully into the realm of the spirit and of grace.
And the argument uh, goes something like this. So has the believer. The believer has gone with him through this same experience, the same death to sin, the same death to the law, the same death to death itself. We were made, Paul says, to die to the law through his death and our participation in it. In many ways, you see, it's a repetition of the same arguments that you find in chapter six. The fact that Jesus has died has led to my death, to these same things. And the fact that he has been raised into something new, bringing about all of these new and wonderful possibilities, not only for himself, but also for me, means that I am able now to experience them as well. What is the purpose of stressing this? That we died to the law through the body of Christ, which is to say, by his death on the cross. It is to tell us how our relationship to the law came to an end. We were under the law, but no more. How did it come about? Again, let me say, not because we decided it would be so. The law doesn't work like that. It isn't that easy. In fact, it is impossible that any of you should have gotten out from under the law, your former husband, apart from death. But now that we have died along with Christ, Paul says, uh, who has died? Well, the old man. The old man, uh, or let's say in this case, the old woman who was married to the law, the former husband. But now that she has died, we are in a position where we are free to marry another without breaking the law. And do you notice, let me say as an aside, how Paul is continuously vindicating the law. He isn't setting aside. He's upholding it. He's saying even in the realm of grace, we are not free to break the law. Certainly Christ in his procedure of saving us, is not breaking the law, he's upholding it. Someone had to die if we were to be free to marry another. Oh, but someone has died, and so we are free. And that is exactly what happened, Paul says. We have died to the law. Our former husband, under whom we were held in this awful bondage to the effect that we should be married to Jesus Christ. You see, he never stops with the negative. He always hurries on to the positive. Not only have you died... To the old husband, but now you've been married to the new husband. The church here is seen and portrayed as the bride of Christ. And now what was impossible for us to do in our old position, namely bear fruit for God. For our old husband was impotent in this regard. No one ever bore fruit for God while he or she was under the law. Now we are able to do it. In this new relationship married to Jesus Christ. We are bearing fruit for God. We are able, in other words, to live a life of real holiness. The fruit of holiness, he says in chapter 6, verse 22. We just saw that. This is something Paul says, do you appreciate? You could never do before in your former position, but now you're able to do it. Now you're doing it. That is why Paul was at such pains to stress in chapter 6, verse 14, that the believer is not under the law, but he's under grace. He's no longer married to the old husband. He's married to the new. He's not married to the law. He's married to Jesus Christ. Do you appreciate the wonder of this? And do you appreciate the possibilities that this brings about in your life? Things which were not possible before. No, not ever. There isn't a single man who is under the law who's bearing fruit for God. And if you know anything uh, about the, the effect of God's grace in your life, you'll be able to say it about yourself. Formerly, what fruit did I bear? I didn't bear any. 
That's the argument of chapter 6, verses 20 through 22. But the wonder of God's grace is that now I am. Now that I am married to Jesus Christ. The reason that the law could not do this is something Paul will go on to say. Chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. And then he'll expand it in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. But for now, let us simply understand and let us wonder, even to say, that the Christian position is one in which we are married to Jesus Christ. We are the bride. He is the husband. Not the law, but Jesus Christ. And with with this thought, certain things ought to occur to us. And I offer these as points of application uh, or uses. The first of which is that, uh, let me turn to Ephesians 5. I think I'll be helped more by this passage and what I'm about to say. One is that we are now in a position where we are called to submit to him. We are not under the law, but we are under this new husband. What held in the former case holds in the new. He has dominion over us. We are in the position of the wife. We are bound by him and to him. Listen again to how Paul puts it. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Do you understand? That's the position of the bride of Christ. She is subject to him. She is in a position of submission. She is under him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Oh, but I've only begun to describe it. Another thing is that as the bride of Christ, we are the object of his love and adoration. His continual unfailing love. Paul will go on to say, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, uh, nothing, nothing at all. Jesus is one who cherishes the bride in a way none of you husbands ever will cherish your brides. She is the recipient of his love always. In fact, uh, that is the position of the, of the Christian that Paul has already described in chapter 5. The Holy Spirit is shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts. He'll go on to describe it in chapter 8. The thing that we are aware of most. The thing that the Holy Spirit is testifying in the heart of the believer. The thing that the believer enjoys more than anything else is the love of God. And is the love of the husband, Jesus Christ. She is aware of it. She's enjoying it. Do you know anything of this? Do you know what it is to be the bride of Christ? Not only this, but he protects her, he nourishes her, he washes her with the water of the word, he lays down his life for her so that she might flourish. Do you understand that there is no position superior to this than being the bride of Christ? Number three, because this new relationship is called a marriage, it means the two really are one. Oh, great is the mystery, Paul says, but it is really so. Christ and his bride now have been joined together by an unbreakable bond that nothing now can break. We are bound to him and he to us forevermore. Nothing can break the bond. Do you see this is the ultimate ground of Christian assurance? Again, Paul will go on to say, nothing can break us, uh, can separate us from his love. Not even death. It's the first thing he says. Not even death. But finally, we see the purpose of this marriage as the fourth point. Both here in chapter 7 and in Ephesians chapter 5. The purpose of this marriage is not the happiness of the bride, though I would say this bride is very happy. No woman was ever so happy as her. 
but it is the sanctification of the bride. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Why did he marry her? Why did he go to such lengths to do so? It's so that she might bear fruit to God. It's the same argument in Ephesians chapter 5. The husband's whole effort, and yes, this is also an application to husbands now. It's geared towards the sanctification of the bride. She is meant to be pure and sanctified by his efforts. Indeed, this is what she's doing herself. She's making herself ready. She's purifying herself. Revelation chapter 19. She's meant to bear bear fruit for God. And she knows this, the fruit of holiness. And because of her new husband, now she's able to do this. She couldn't do it on her own, nor under her old husband. But now that she is joined to Jesus Christ, she is bearing fruit. You remember what Jesus says in John chapter 15? No one can bear fruit apart from me, but he who abides in me, he will bear much fruit. It's the same imagery. It's the imagery of a union, of a bond. And so now that we have been joined to Christ by his efforts, he has redeemed us. He has rescued us. Like a fruitful wife bearing uh, bearing, uh, children for her husband, so now the church has become the fruitful wife of Jesus Christ, bearing the fruit of holiness and sanctification to God. That's the description of the Christian. Surely uh, we are able to say, I hope we're able to say, this is one of the most glorious pictures of the Christian life there is. Christ the husband who dies for his wife and redeems her from the old husband and the church as the bride, humbly submitting, receiving always the love of her husband and bearing the fruit of holiness for God. May we who are Christian people be led by such a description to examine ourselves and as a result of this find true encouragement in the thought of who we are and who we now belong to. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Reading now the words of institution as they come to us from Matthew's Gospel. Verse 26 of chapter 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, Until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out from or to the Mount of Olives. Well, it's always uh, it's always wonderful to see that text in light of the sermon to recognize uh, what Jesus is doing is he is speaking to his church and he's saying, I'm about to die for you. And uh, and and you will be redeemed by what I'm about to do. You will enjoy now forevermore. The gift of the forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. 
And what he's really saying, I think this should be obvious from what I've just been saying, is that I bind you now to myself. I rescue you from your former bondage. I make you my own. And now that you belong to me, nothing can ever rob you from me. Nothing can ever take you away. Nothing can ever take you outside of the realm of grace. And it is, well, it is the duty of the wife not only to submit to the husband, but let us also say uh, to be grateful. How ungrateful we can be uh, to our husband who has died for us and who has loved us with a greater love than ever can be known in this life. And we ought to ask ourselves, are we enjoying this love? Are we delighting in it? Are we relishing it? What it is to be loved by Christ That is how we should view the Lord's Supper. It is Christ loving his bride. Christ assuring the bride of his love. I won't say that Christ is bodily present in the elements. He isn't. He's bodily present in in heaven, but he is spiritually present. And he's present in his word. And he's saying, uh, wherever the church is gathered, there I am in the midst of her. And the thing that he would have her to know is his great love for her. And the certainty that that should carry the thought that I am his and I'm going to heaven. And that even now I'm beginning to enjoy that. Nothing can ever rob me of it. And I ask you, is that what you know? And is that what you want to know more and more? That really is the test of the Lord's Supper. Do I belong to Jesus Christ? Has his blood saved me and redeemed me? I'll let those words stand simply, both as words of invitation as well as words of fencing. Let a man examine himself. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you for the gift of Jesus Christ, your son, who has become our husband. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have gone to great pains to redeem us, that you have died to the law and you've caused us to die along with the law. And now that a death has occurred, we can die no more, not in the true sense, not as the sentence in the wages of death. No, we've been freed from that and we now belong to you. We live in the realm of grace so that even death itself means something altogether different. It just means going into the presence of God. It doesn't mean going away from him for us anymore. Jesus, you've redeemed everything. You've told us nothing at all can separate us from your love. Everything, in fact, is conspiring to confirm the love that you have for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would view this, this act of communion in the same way and that your, your love, the great love that you have for us, would be confirmed by this sacrament. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.